Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Eric Cohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez, conservative activist Jonathan Greenberg, and author and commentator David Masiotra. Our program coming to you tonight from Beyond the Beltway's new flagship station, AM560, The Answer, in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Our phone lines are now open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to join us and be a part of the program this evening. Thank you so much for listening. Excited to have everybody listening to the program this evening. So much to talk about, and why don't we start it in Washington, D.C.? So... This week, after much negotiation, a lot of talk that the Democrats were going to go it alone on an infrastructure bill, there's an agreement. There's a bipartisan agreement. The group that has been working this out has an agreement to announce. They come out with Joe Biden. They announce that they have an agreement on a bipartisan infrastructure bill, much smaller than what was originally proposed. But nonetheless, the bipartisan agreement that Joe Biden said he wanted is there. And then two hours after that, He comes out and says, but if I don't get this other bill through reconciliation, then I'm not going to sign the original bill. So it seems to me he has torpedoed his own infrastructure bill, assuming he doesn't walk this back. Ray, let's start with you. What is Joe Biden thinking here? Well, I think that's a great question. I don't think anyone really knows lately what his strategy is, you know. If you take the, we were having this discussion before the start of the show. If you could get a win, take a win. Start building wins upon wins. That's the nature of politics. And I think he almost is counting his uh, chickens before they hatch with this one, assuming that he could use the leverage of this bipartisan issue to force something else. And I think it's going to completely blow up. I think it's a mistake because then he's going to have to revert back to just a go-it-alone Joe kind of mentality. Jonathan, is he going to walk this back and get the bipartisan infrastructure bill, or is he going to stick with what he announced in this speech where he is going to have to get a deal? Is it What is going to happen? Uh, my understanding is he walked it back a little bit yesterday. He said that he, would, he, he was fully in favor of the $600 billion infrastructure package. Um, he didn't specify that that was independent of a larger... I think they're calling it a human infrastructure package, but uh, I think I think he tried to walk that back. He said something about how he uh, he understood that he had upset some Republicans. Uh, look, I, I think you've got 11 Republicans who went out on a limb, um, not all of whom are retiring. Some of them are retiring, but not all of them are. And uh, I, th- I think that they were uh, pretty upset that the president did that, and rightfully so. So if it's if what he said yesterday is a walk back, um, I think that's a I guess that's a good thing, um, but I, I I don't know very often what Joe Biden's thinking or if he's thinking or what's going to come out of his mouth next. So I'm, I, I I hope that yesterday was a walk back. David Masiotra is uh, the bipartisan deal. Is that a victory for Joe Biden? Is it you know, enough to satisfy his uh, left flank? With is, is it big enough to keep them happy? Well, as a, a proud part of the left flank, I suppose, uh, 
it wouldn't be big enough to satisfy me from a policy or political or economic perspective. However, uh, we're living in an era when the two-party system is no longer functional. So uh, I would suggest to uh, Biden, if he were to call me uh, late tonight before I go to sleep and ask for my advice, uh, if you can make a bipartisan deal, take it, because... Uh, it's as rare as Haley's comment now in our current political climate, and he'd get about more than half of what he originally wanted from a policy perspective, and he'd also be able to make claim to a political and cultural victory by negotiating this deal within such a hostile and tribal environment. Ray, don't you think that's the important thing here is that it is an example of for all that we see that Washington can't work together, that nobody can come together on anything bipartisan. This is an actual bipartisan accomplishment, which just makes the whole thing that he said earlier this week baffling to me because it is just as we you said we were talking about before the program, take a win when you get a win. Why even make a statement like that? Why make anything contingent on it? Bank the win that you got. It emphasizes what Joe Biden said was his key characteristic, which to me, the way I read the Biden campaign was, I'm an adult, I can make deals, I can work with everybody here in Washington. And then to try to seemingly nuke that, even if he's walked it back, seems bizarre to me. Yeah, I think, you know, he's trying to resurrect that bygone era of bipartisanship. But I think at the end of the day, the idea that not just politics, but Washington, D.C. doesn't seem to work well or function at all. And I think that he's struggling right now politically, trying to adhere to what he promised that he would do as a 30-plus year member of the federal government versus what he knows he can do, which is he can move just about anything since he has a majority in both houses. And if he really wanted to flex and do what he wanted to do, he could just do it alone and be done with it. But that, Jonathan, let me go to you on this. It's, that's not actually quite right, though, is it? I mean, he, he has 50 seats in the Senate, and he has Kamala Harris to break the tie when there is a tie. But the biggest problem has been on a lot of the things that have been put out there, such as H.R. 1, the, the voting rights bill that uh, the Democrats have been pushing, it's not that they have, um, they don't have the 60 votes that they would need to beat a filibuster. They don't have the 50 votes that they would need, even if they were willing to nuke the filibuster for a lot of these things. Yeah, I think that's true. The, look, the other thing about, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that Biden any longer believes his pitch during the campaign that he wants to be you know, someone who can get bipartisan things done. I think that he's drunk the Kool-Aid on being a transformational president. I think that the Sanders package... Of, of legislation which amounts to what six seven trillion dollars um he views as transformational and i think he wants to try to push that or the people around him are convincing him that he wants to try to push that um look i i mean i'm not surprised that you can get bipartisan consensus on spending a lot of money on infrastructure i mean if there's one thing that everybody in washington can agree on it's spending 600 billion dollars on roads and bridges and stuff that's that's the stuff that politicians want to bring home so if you can't get agreement on spending you know, all that money at home, then what can you get agreement on anymore? David, has Joe Biden bought into that narrative fully that he has this opportunity? Because it was, again, I think that was his initial pitch when he was running for office, but he gets in there and all of a sudden he's being told, you know, you can be FDR. Is, is he still trying to be FDR? Well, the problem is, is that most of the Republican Party has walked away from the bipartisan process. 
I mean, to give some comparative reference, in 2007, 82 Republican members of the House voted to increase the minimum wage. Uh, now you might not get one. So to return to my earlier point, of, of course Biden wants to be FDR, but to return to my earlier point, it would be politically savvy of him to accept this deal because it would bolster the remaining Republicans who want to negotiate, who want to compromise, and in the process make those who are obstinate uh, look far worse and look like they have far less appeal and understanding toward the American people. That is author and commentator David Maciotra, also with us tonight, Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez and conservative activist Jonathan Greenberg. We'll be back soon on Beyond the Beltway. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm uh, coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more 
at LLS.org. Eric Hohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway this week. Jonathan, just before the break, David was making a point on, in his opinion, Republicans being the reason for dysfunction in Congress in Washington, D.C. You had a thought on that. Yeah, I think it's nonsense. I think that the, there's institutional brokenness that's uh, got a lot to do with who gets elected, um, the, the kind of people we like, the incentivization in politics today. Um, and uh, I, I think that pinning that on one party is um, silly and using an example of a conservative principle that Republican senators were voting for in violation of conservative principle is also kind of ridiculous. The minimum wage isn't a conservative principle. Conservative politicians shouldn't be voting for it. Um, that, that doesn't reflect a, a broken institution when conservatives are voting for conservative things and liberals are voting for liberal things. The brokenness of the institution is that we haven't had regular order in the House in, God, I don't even, 30 years? We haven't had um, appropriations bills that pass as they're supposed to in 25 years? The, the, the whole process is completely screwed up, and the reason it's screwed up is because uh, the institution is broken, and no one party broke the institution. It, it is broken. It needs to be fixed, but pointing fingers at the other side, conveniently enough at the other side, uh, doesn't fix it. Yeah, David, I want to go back to you, but I, I, there's... A hobby horse of mine in there, which is the idea that we've had for so long that transparency is always a good thing. And I think in, in a lot of cases, transparency obviously is a good thing. We want to know what our government is doing. And C-SPAN was revolutionary when C-SPAN put cameras in Congress so that we could all see what Congress was doing. But as with so many things, we don't think about the unintended consequences of doing something like that. And what it has created, if anybody watches congressional hearings now... It is not about, you know, you had former Attorney General, when he was Attorney General, Bill Barr in there, in order for a line of Democrats and a line of Republicans to all ask the exact same question and not give him time to respond to it. There are, to me, I, I think I agree with Jonathan, there are so many more fundamental things that are broken about the way Congress works that I, I don't think t this trying to divvy out blame on either side is all that productive. Well, there's a history to uh, the entrenchment of partisanship. You have to go back, go back longer than this, but for the sake of the program, if you go back to the 90s, Newt Gingrich, when he became Speaker of the House, actually did things like dramatically uh, reduce the capacity of committees to review bills before they go to vote. He cut the budget for... Uh, research staff and other important staffers for uh, representatives to have in their offices. He cut the budgets and sometimes outright eliminated them for offices such as those that study things like pandemics. Uh, so Gingrich really created, uh, or at least initiated, uh, this era of extreme hostility toward the other side. Now, if we flash forward to the present, uh, there are left-wing Democrats in the House and Senate. There are also moderate Democrats in the House and Senate. Uh, there are right-wing Republicans in the House and Senate. But moderate Republicans are increasingly an endangered species. We could see that with the refusal to even support the creation of a commission to study January 6th. 
we could see it in Mitch McConnell's brazen, publicly declared policy of refusing to even consider a hypothetical Supreme Court uh, nomination from Biden should the Republicans take back the Senate. So politics was often about coalition building. And if moderate Democrats could build a coalition with moderate Republicans, as they did on the minimum wage, uh, you can get something done. Now that increasingly doesn't exist because the Republican Party is playing a game of cultural politics, uh, empowered by Fox News and the like, and is no longer interested in governance, which is why Biden should, to return to the earlier point, accept this deal because he has 11 Republicans who, as someone said, are going out on a limb and showing a willingness to govern and a willingness to enact public policy and not just score points by saying insane things about the rigged election or uh, whatever the latest conspiracy theory du jour, I, uh, according to Tucker Carlson. Happened I, want to, uh, I, I want to go to Ray to talk about his... Uh, as they say, lived experience of working <laughs> in a legislature. But, Jonathan, I think you had something you wanted to jump yeah, in Yeah, I just quick. want to su suggest to you that the idea that moderate Democrats are not themselves incredibly endangered flies in the face of reality. Uh, Lacey Clay lost last cycle to Cory Bush. Elliot Engel lost last cycle to Jamal Bowman. Uh, here in Illinois, Dan Lipinski lost to Marie Newman. Um, and those are not the only examples. Crowley there, losing to AOC. Right, that's right. There, there are... There are there is example after example after example of the exact same thing happening. It is happening after it happened to the Republicans, um, but it is nonetheless happening. Uh, and this idea that um, you know you can you can point and stomp your feet and shout they started it and and as if that solves anything. I, look, I left my party. I left my party in 2016 when Trump got the nomination. I no longer call myself a Republican. Um, I, I believe in governing uh, and, and in striking compromise. It's the only way to govern in a country like ours, uh, which is why I, we were talking at the break about FDR. You can't pass transformative legislation with a 50-50 Senate. I mean, maybe you can stuff it through, but you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, FDR had 60 senators in a 96-senator body uh, and a massive majority in the House. That kind of decisive... Uh, uh, electoral position doesn't exist today, and so you shouldn't be trying to pass a transformational uh, agenda, even no matter how how many feelings you have about it. Yeah, I um, I and, and for listeners who will note that uh, I am not the impartial host that Bruce Dumont is. I have uh, <laughs> I have opinions and uh, will not be afraid to share them. And I actually agree with um, a lot of the indictments that David made about the Gingrich Congress that were, I Same. think were things that too. they did wrong. But Democrats have also held power since then, and they have done nothing to it. rectify mm -hmm. any of right. those things. We have moved all the power and control up to leadership offices, yep. and the only deal-making that gets done now is in leadership offices the night before a shutdown happens. Regular oh, order. Paul Ryan said he would go back to regular order, and he didn't. Yep. He made it a, a point of his leadership election that he would go back to regular order, and he didn't. And if you want to talk about... The, the biggest disaster in getting anything done in Congress, it's the failure to go back to regular order. I'm uh, sorry. Po politicians no, say one thing and do not. another. Uh, in other news, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. Uh, Ray. <laughs> if, if I can just make one quick point to clarify my position, uh, because I don't want to sound sure. uh, oblivious to, to the way the ground is shifting underneath the feet of the Democratic Party as well. The party is certainly moving to the left, becoming more liberal, leftist, progressive, whatever term we want to use. However, right now within the party, there are still moderate figures who in, 
uh, wield a great deal, yield a great deal of power, and that includes Joe Biden, uh, that includes Chuck Schumer, that includes Nancy Pelosi, that includes Pete Buttigieg. Uh, now, whether that changes in the next 10 years and those figures have to exit the party or at least lose stature within it, like what we've seen happen to their equivalents in the Republican side, uh, remains to be seen. But there is still a powerful, moderate presence within the Democratic Party that doesn't exist in equal force or number on the Republican side. Well, of most of those individuals that David just listed are almost 80 years old. So I think <laughs> the, the problem that we have is that the moderates that you're looking for are not in the next generation. And if you look real briefly, you know, there's no argument that this, you know, addiction to this omnibus spending bills that have never been edited for 25 years, going back to when I was still in high school, is a problem. Lazy politicians who don't want to do their job and just want to pontificate, like you said about C-SPAN, they all play to the camera. They're not playing to the witness. Mm -hmm. They're not asking those mm -hmm. questions. They all want to know, as we've seen with uh, Senator Hawkins, they know what they're doing. They're just playing to the viewing audience. And, you know, the other thing that we're not talking about, which allows all these individuals to go there, is the rampant gerrymandering on both sides to prevent people from becoming true moderates having to represent diverse districts. If you only have to play to the Republican right or the Democratic left, that's what you're going to get once the election's over. And I think you have to start addressing that as well. Yes, the, um, I, I, we, we mentioned the incentive problems that exist there. And I think for me, some of the most clarifying things in the incentive problems that exist in Congress, we've seen over the last couple of years. And for me, the, the key example of this, the guy who to me embodied what was wrong with the United States Congress, is former Congressman Jason Chaffetz. Wow. Because he literally quit his job as a legislator in order to be a pundit on Fox yep. News. Yep. But you see the exact same kind of thing with um, people, uh, Democrats and Republicans, all clearly more interested in whether or not that they can get a hit on a cable news channel yep. than if they can actually do something legislatively. And the perfect example of this in Congress right now is a Republican, Madison Cawthorn of North yep. Carolina, who is 25 years old, hired only communication staff and no legislative staff Correct. in his congressional office. Right. Big surprise if he's not going to be pushing a lot of legislation. Congress is not a side gig, and that's how a lot of them are using it right now. So the, um, you know, the unpopular thing to say here, it's easy to pick on politicians, but I, I personally blame the people who send them. Um, we, we have incentivized these kind of people uh, to seek and, and win office. Uh, we do everything we can to disincentivize good people uh, who are not crazy uh, to seek office, um, oh. and the you know the present company excluded. Present, right? yes, of course, yes, no, yes. Just, uh, check it, just making right, sure. Right, right. <laughs> uh, perhaps unique on the city council, but yes, present company excluded. But no, the uh, especially when it comes to federal office, I think federal office is one of the only things that people pay attention to. Uh, you know, uh, how many how many regular folks um, across the country can name their congressmen or their senators? Uh, probably relatively few, but if they can name any politicians, those are likely the ones that they can name. Uh, and that, and so we incentivize people who are looking for media careers uh, to go right, into Right, and them. that's a crucial point because it also speaks to the nationalization of politics, which is awful. Uh, with the collapse of local newspapers and local media, when people tune into politics, they're thinking of these large sociocultural issues mm -hmm. instead of what affects my community, my neighborhood here at home? David, i got to go to a break. Thank you so much, Eric Cohn, sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway.
This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Eric Cohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. I want to give uh, all of our guests this week a chance to introduce themselves. And it strikes me that uh, I have to start because I am not your normal host. I am not Bruce Dumont. Uh, I'm Eric Cohn. My day job is I am uh, Director of Communications at the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And on Wednesday, I will become one of the legion of former Chicagoans as we are moving to Grand Rapids and fleeing the state of Illinois as if it were on fire, because it might as well be. Um, 
But uh, I also used to host a radio program here at this August station, News Talk 560, The Answer, in suburban Chicago. I hosted Sources with Knowledge along with my friend Joe Kaiser uh, for a good run there from 2019 to 2021. So they let me back in the building, so I guess that's a pretty good sign. But I want to thank Bruce in what is the – this is the 41st anniversary of Beyond the Beltway. And just want to thank him. Uh, he's a little under the weather, but I want to thank him for the honor of sitting in his chair behind his microphone for this program. Let's go to David Masiotro. Thank you, Eric, and I also want to thank Bruce. Uh, I started listening to Beyond the Beltway when I was a high school student. Uh, I enjoyed it back then as a listener, and I, I still enjoy listening to it now, but I always enjoy appearing on the program. Uh, I'm a writer. I'm the author of several books, uh, including Mellencamp, American Troubadour, and my latest, I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters. I write for a wide variety of websites. Uh, the best place to keep up with my work is davidmasiotra.com. Jonathan Greenberg. Well, so uh, David and I overlap in that uh, while working on a congressional campaign, I sang on stage with Mellencamp. He called the staff up, and we sang Jack and Diane with him, David. So uh. I don't know if you've ever sung with Mellencamp, but... Uh, but but I've got but I've had the opportunity yeah. to sing <laughs> with them. But uh, that's really cool. Um, so I'm uh, I'm an ordained rabbi, uh, and uh, I have a background in campaign politics. And I was the Midwest political director at APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs, for two congressional cycles. So I'm basically qualified to talk about the two things that you're not allowed to talk about in polite company: uh, religion and politics. <laughs> um, I've spent time as a, uh, one of the vice presidents at the Illinois Policy Institute, a free market think tank here in Illinois. Uh, I run for office. I ran for the state legislature in 2012, and today I help to run a family foundation. So I've gone from the nonprofit side of things to the funder side of things, and I can tell you that you get your phone call taken much easier on the funder side of things. Alderman Ray Lopez. I'm Raymond Lopez, Alderman of Chicago's 15th Ward on the southwest side, representing uh, African-American and Latino district. I've uh, been in city council since 2015 in my second term. And I'd love to have my mayor, Lori Lightfoot, as my singing partner one day. <laughs> um, I think we, we just throw profanity at each other and call it a day. <laughs> what song would you be singing? Um, you know what? Now, that is a good question. Um, I think... Uh, Why can't we be friends? You know, I think <laughs> Burn Baby Burn might come up. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> well, let's stick with the Chicago City Council for a moment because we were talking about dysfunction in legislative bodies and I want to go <laughs> to you Raymond about are you seeing the same kind of is this trickling down right so we focus so much on the dysfunction that everybody can identify at the federal level I think David made the good point that we have really nationalized our politics that you know prior to the Newt Gingrich era in Congress Tip O'Neill Speaker of the House that you know, all politics is local, and it is no longer local. It is very much national. Mm -hmm. um, are you, one, I mean, are you seeing the same kind of dysfunction within the Chicago City Council in your experience? And do you get the same kind of people who are preoccupied with what are federal issues that are really out of your domain? Without a doubt, we see that uh, in big cities all across this country, particularly here in the city of Chicago, where you have some members of the body who are newer, who want to talk about everything from political prisoners in Ecuador to, you know, what's going on in, in India to everything everything under the sun other than what is a local issues, garbage cans, rats, things of that nature. And I think that that kind of preoccupation with things that they don't have control of is, you know, beneficial to them because they can't be held to a standard of fixing anything or doing anything or addressing anything. And that doesn't just apply to us. You know, our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, says she's focusing on national issues. 
Well, it'd be great if she focused on the local issues of our city, such as the rioting, the civil unrest that's left many neighborhoods completely destroyed for over 15, for over 12, 13 months now. I think that's, well, actually, we have a call. I want to go to uh, the phone lines for that call. If you want to join the program, 1-800-723-8289. Let's go to John from McHenry County. You're on Beyond the Beltway. Uh, good evening, all, and hope everyone's having a great Sunday evening here. Okay. I wanted to come back on the dysfunction of Washington. Um, wanted to bring up something that I didn't hear the panelists, and I hope will comment here. It's not so much the gerrymandering, because that doesn't impact the United States Senate. I mean, obviously everything's statewide there. Something I would like to ask you guys about is something I've been reading is how primary elections vary state by state, and could the biggest risk or the biggest problem be because everybody's afraid to be primary. Everybody's afraid to be primary, more the Republicans, but even the Democrats are seeing this. We saw this in Lipinski and Newman last year. But could it be with what Alaska has uh, transition to going into next year with the top four blanket and then a ranked choice voting for the general among those four, could that be a way to begin to break the loggerheads? Because you look at Illinois, the state of Illinois is winner-take-all primary. I mean, one plus however many votes, whereas Iowa, neighboring Iowa, the primary winner must achieve at least 35%. Uh, otherwise, they'll go to a party convention and then North Carolina, you mentioned uh, Congressman Cawthorn. He wouldn't have been elected had he not kept the top vote-getter in the first round of voting from achieving over 30% of the primary vote last year. And then he won the runoff in the head-to-head. So could that be a way, and obviously that's a state-by-state decision, and uh, could that be a way to begin to reinstitute the order that the Founding Fathers meant to hear? So I'm I'm going to listen to what you guys have to say. John, thank you for your call. Let's go to you, David, since you, I think, were the first to bring up a lot of this dysfunction. Um, I guess, so the thoughts there, one, on, on rank choice voting, uh, which we've seen, actually, uh, it's been taking place in Maine. Uh, Alaska, as he said, moved to it. And the New York City mayor's York City, race yeah. was also a rank choice voting election. And then any thoughts on the problem with primaries? Uh, ranked choice voting is, is a good idea as far as I can tell uh, because it might uh, strengthen third-party candidates because it liberates voters from feeling that they absolutely have to choose the candidate that they prefer who actually has a shot at victory. Uh, so I like ranked choice voting for that idea. Uh, it at least gives people uh, more opportunities to amplify their point of view in terms of primary problems, uh, yes, I certainly agree with the caller that that's a major issue, and that uh, emanates out of that nationalization, which I was referring to before our break. Uh, moderate figures are absolutely terrified that they'll face a primary opponent who can uh, whip the more extreme elements within their party into a frenzy on cultural issues and thereby negating any local interest and concerns and uh, win as a result. And then you get characters like uh, Cawthorn, who you referred to, er, referred to earlier, who's essentially there just to continue to run a media campaign. He's not there to, to legislate or to speak on issues of governance. 
I'm going to go to Jonathan next, but I, I want to make a point, too, that I, one of the other issues that I think we can trace a lot of this back to, or at least in my opinion you can trace a lot of this back to, was campaign finance reform. Because someone who is prophetic about this in his floor speech, Mitch McConnell, said what you are doing here is you are not getting money out of politics. You are getting money out of the parties. And you want the parties, A, to have some control over who represents them. I definitely think the Republican Party, if you want to go back to 2015, would have wanted a little more control over who was going to represent mm. them. And you want them to have a long-term interest in their own well-being. And moving so much money out into other organizations, into um, uh, PACs that are able to fund and back candidates like that, I don't think has created the desired effect that John McCain and Russ Feingold wanted when they crafted that legislation. Jonathan. So I, I, th I think part of the problem that you run into here is that no matter what better mousetrap you think you're building, and, and uh, uh, you know all of these are ideas that have merit, but no matter what better mousetrap you think you're building, as long as you then hand that mousetrap over to a citizenry that does not have the civic knowledge, the core fundamental information about American founding principles and, and how the system works, uh, does not have the disposition to debate and discuss issues, uh, and therefore isn't prepared for advanced citizenship, as long as you hand the system over to those people, you're going to get Madison Cawthorn because, and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Cori Bush and other people who make voters feel good, uh, you know, especially angry voters, make them feel good. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm a conservative. I'm cautious about making better mousetraps. Uh, I want to know that they're better mousetraps. And one of the dumbest things <clears throat> in a career full of dumb things that Pat Quinn ever did was work to change the Illinois legislature from uh, every district having three representatives to having one representative. Now, you'd think that I would like cutting down on the size of a legislature, and I generally do, but the way that it used to work was that the, you would have uh, two, whoever got the, whatever party got the most vote, you would have two representatives from that party, you would have a third representative from the other party, which meant that Republicans in a district like mine, which is overwhelmingly Democratic, would still have a representative that thought like they did. Um, and the, you know, that you, you, could, you could still go to somebody who cared about the way you saw the world. Now, generally speaking, again, I, I'm all for cutting down the size of legislatures, but uh, in this case, I think that did a real disservice uh, to people. It forced, uh, you know, it forced some bipartisanship. You had um, legislators from all over the state of every party. It wasn't everybody downstate was a Republican and everybody in the you know, Cook County metro area uh, was a was a Democrat. Um, leadership had to worry about those parts of the state. So, uh, you know, I, I think that was a, a bad move. We got to be careful about better mousetraps. We do, and one of those better mousetraps that our caller mentioned is ranked choice voting, and I want to get to that in the New York City mayor's race when we come back. Eric Cohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Eric Ohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. And our caller had brought up ranked choice voting as a possible way to deal with some of the political dysfunction that we've had. We actually have an experiment in ranked choice voting that just happened this week, and that is the New York City mayor's race. And, Raven, I want to ask you about that in general, your thoughts on ranked choice voting, but also do you see any parallels between what's happening in New York City in that mayor's race and what you're seeing as an alderman in Chicago, where clearly one of the issues on the forefront of voters' minds in New York City was crime. And the candidate that wanted to cut money from the New York Police Department uh, was championed by AOC. Not a winner, it looks like. You know, we still have a lot to finalize there. And, of course, this is only the Democratic primary. The winner still needs to go on to face Curtis Sliwa, who will likely be the Republican nominee, Guardian founder Angels. of the Guardian Angels, yeah. former radio show host, man almost assassinated by John Gotti. Um, but... Crime clearly on the front of minds of voters. Eric Adams, former cop, the one who was clearly toughest on crime in that campaign, was 
the man who looks like he's going to be the next mayor of New York. Clearly crime problems here in the city of Chicago. I'm curious if you see anything you can take from what's happening in New York and apply to Chicago. Oh, without a doubt. And I think, uh, let me just go back to the, the, the voting mechanisms. You know, I, I think ranked choice is something that a lot of people are investigating. I think they're even talking about looking at it here in the state of Illinois. Um, but I also know that like, for Chicago, for example, we don't have a Democratic or Republican primary. We just have an open primary. And it's, you know, the best out of the top two doesn't get 50% plus one of the votes move on to the runoff. And I think that, in my opinion, helps give opportunity to people as well. So that shouldn't be discounted on its on its face. But back to the election parallels and the city parallels. You know, you have seen far-left mayors like de Blasio now here, Lori Lightfoot and others, who have pushed these radicalized agendas, trying to demonize police, cut budgets, put forward the hugs and kisses approach to crime. And you've seen that completely backfire with the electorate. I think there was 30, 35% of vote, Democratic voters in New York ranked safety as their number one issue going into the polls. And it resonated there. And I think the same applies here, where you see a city that, like New York, is out of control. It is the dirtiest, grittiest it's been in decades. And you're going to see probably a trend to go backwards. The interesting thing, though, I will say is that, according to the New York Times, while the overall citywide electorate wanted someone who was basically more focused on safety and neighborhood law and order, at the local level, the city council members ended up becoming more progressive. So they wanted that kind of duality between more left-leaning locally but more conservative citywide. David Masiotra, as you look at the election for mayor in the city of New York, is there anything that we can take from that and extrapolate out into our national political conversation? I mean, look, it is an election in a Democratic primary in one of the most Democratic cities in the entire country in an off-year um, the seemingly obvious answer would be there's probably not. But, you know, it's also the only thing that we've got to go on for a conversation right now. So is there anything you can take and pull out of that that applies to our national level? Or is there any lesson to be learned there? Yeah, and it's similar to what uh, the alderman, Ray Lopez, was just saying. Uh, I'm a white uh, writer with a graduate degree. And I say that because people like me right now are willing to pontificate on how working class and middle class uh, black and Latino people are supposed to feel about politics. Uh, I say people like me categorically because I don't have arrogance and I don't have that idiocy. Uh, if, big surprise, if you actually talk to working class and middle class black and Latino people, they don't want to destroy the police. They want to reform the police. That's a major difference. And one can also argue that a big part of the problem with policing is that there are not enough police in certain high crime areas. So the lesson we can extrapolate is uh, the Democratic Party uh, better get this right if they want to win going forward because uh, most black voters and most Latino voters, they want to change police police behavior. They don't want to eliminate police presence from their neighborhoods. And there's actually a great book to that effect by a Harvard sociologist called The Black Silent Majority. Uh, so that's the lesson I would apply to national politics. If you, from what I've read and, and people I've talked to in 
communities, um, black and Latino communities, I think what Dave was saying, there seems to be this presumption, particularly amongst the left, that, you know, it's like, oh, they, they want police out of the neighborhoods. And what I see well represented there is that, like, they, they both want more and less policing, right? You know, they want more policing when it is solving the serious crimes that are happening, the violence that we see in places like Chicago. But, you know, I grew up across the river from St. Louis, and so much of the tiny municipalities in North St. Louis County, the only interactions that people there ever have with the police are for ticky-tacky little things where they treat the people of those communities like they're ATMs that are used to fund the operations of their governments. So it's not a simple, easy answer, more or less. It is a better right. but more and less as someone yeah. who represents both of those two demographics and we have our crime issues I can tell you that no one has ever told me legitimately that they want less police in the neighborhoods they want better policing they want to feel safe just like everybody else they just don't want to be constantly victimized by them has there been a dumber campaign slogan ever offered than defund the police Jonathan Greenberg uh, I don't think so. That's that uh, was a pretty bad one. Um, the look along the lines of what Ray was just saying. Um, I, I don't generally agree with uh, this writer, but uh, Radley Balco and I were uh, knew each other in college. We both went to Indiana University at the same time. Uh, Radley's a libertarian uh, writer. He writes a lot of stuff about about the police. He had a fantastic article in the Washington Post several years ago about Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was about St. Louis County, mm -hmm. not, not specifically about Ferguson, and about how they use people in those poorer suburbs as ATMs and how you go from one sur suburb to the next, much like you do in Chicago. You go from one suburb to the next without even realizing you're crossing borders, and there's always a police department on the other side of the line waiting there, to give you a ticket. There is one stretch of the highway by the airport where in about a little over a mile, you'll go through six separate municipalities, and if you have expired tags, you could be cited six separate times for that violation. It's crazy. Eric Hohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on the Beyond the Beltway. We'll say goodbye to David Masiotra, who is only with us for this hour. Thank you, David. We appreciate it. And we will be back with more Beyond the Beltway at the top of the hour. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org.
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Jill, why didn't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Song again. Here's that song again. For the hundredth time today, here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Eric Hone, sitting in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. I want to thank author and commentator David Masiotra, who is with us in the first hour. We continue now in the second hour with Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez and conservative activist Jonathan Greenberg. Thanks so much for sticking with us, guys, and for all of you out there. If you want to join us, our phone lines are open. 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. Eight, nine, if you want to join us on the program. We're talking national politics, American national politics, let's take American national politics and put it in another country. And we had President Biden, who announced earlier this year that American troops would be out of Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. And for listeners who, again, are joining and know that I'm not Bruce Dumont, I'm not the neutral host that Bruce is, so you will hear my thoughts on some of these things as well. Um, that was the first part of the whole thing that I never understood. Like, the idea of, like, 
if, if you want to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, which is a position, and I'll come back to this in a moment, that I've been in favor of for quite a while, the idea of making the anniversary date September 11th seems like a major own goal because they can quite clearly point to it as like 20 years exactly to the date that we struck the United States, that, that Al-Qaeda being harbored by the Taliban strikes the United States, they're pulling out. That seems the obvious thing they can call a victory. But, Jonathan, I want to put this to you. As someone who has been in favor of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan for years now, largely because I've always said I cannot and I've yet to really hear people articulate to me what it is we're trying to do there. And even though it would seem the most clearly justifiable action that we took after 9-11, it's where Al-Qaeda was, being harbored by the Taliban, and we see now as American troops are getting ready to withdraw that territory is falling to the Taliban, that they're reclaiming territory, that the guard, the army, um, is not fighting, <coughs> that where they are fighting, they're being quickly overrun, it looks like the government will fall maybe even before American troops are all the way out and we could have another Saigon scenario on our hands. Mm -hmm. And I, as someone who's had that position for a while, I'm torn. I'm torn between looking at something that <clears throat> clearly will result in human rights atrocities of the type that we saw before September 11th, where the repression of women, women having acid thrown in their faces for wanting to go to school, all the kinds of things we know are going to happen there, and wanting to say still feeling somewhat on the well what was the point mm -hmm. if after 20 years the government and the army that we helped propped up fell this quickly help me make sense of this well so first of all I, I think there's evidence to suggest that the um, some of the Taliban commanders are actually slowing their role right now so that we don't decide to stay um, so in an effort to make sure that we leave um, they don't want to uh, push too far there. They've been surprised, frankly, about how quickly they've uh, captured as much territory as they have. Um, listen, the, it's, I think it's pretty hard following the, um, the killing of bin Laden, which was 10 years ago now. I think it's pretty hard to make a case for uh, what winning has looked like. Uh, we went in to get bin Laden and to get the people who planned 9-11. I think we've done that. I think we did that 10 years ago. Um, and at that point, though, um, it was you know what Jefferson said about uh, about slavery, right? You had the wolf by the ears. You don't like it, but you don't dare let it go. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that's where we were. We didn't know how to extricate ourselves. And the the painful truth is, there's nothing to do but extricate yourself. Uh, and what's going to happen is bad things are going to happen for Afghanis. Bad things are going to happen for Afghani women. Bad things are going to happen for the people who've helped us, the translators and, and, and guides and other people in Afghanistan who've risked their lives to help American forces rid their country of these horrible people. They're going to end up, if they stay, they're going to end up bearing the brunt of us leaving, and it's awful. Um, and, but you know, as, and you know that I have a, a lot of respect for Liz Cheney and for her father, um, I think that they're wrong about this. I think they've been wrong about this for some time. And I think there's really nothing left to do um, but, but pack up and go. As long as we recognize that bad things are going to, not just bad things for Afghanis, but bad things for us, there are going to be repercussions for American national security from this. We need to like, face those realistically and deal with them, but that doesn't mean that you have to stay. Well, I, w I would think that you know, I, we have to first off admit that leaving, is, like you said, we are is going to be a failure for us. Mm -hmm. President Ghani uh, 
uh, from Afghanistan said, oh, this isn't abandonment, but we are abandoning them. We know we are. Um, I think uh, President Biden said, this isn't a winnable war for us. Well, no one's arguing that point. But we will see ta the Taliban reemerge. We'll see the Afghanistan that wants to destroy America reemerge, and we're going to be back in the same boat we were 20 years ago, reemerged, and with a vengeance because of everything that we've done. And I think it's a mistake for us to leave. Maybe, you know, maintaining... Uh, a way to keep that democracy or retool it or do something but if we just turn with our tails between our legs like we are doing um, it will only end badly for all of us here's part that really doesn't make sense to me which is clearly the American appetite for still being engaged in Afghanistan is pretty much at zero um, it has been for quite some time or the Middle East as a whole right um, <laughs> The realpolitik of it, though, part of this baffles me because <clears throat> Joe Biden, in announcing this, says we need to turn our attention to big power conflicts that we have on our radar, which are Russia and China. And you know what? It strikes me as not at all crazy if you think that the big power conflicts we have now are Russia and China that having a military base right smack between them in Afghanistan might not be the craziest idea. And I, you know, Jonathan, you've known me long enough to say that I can't believe <laughs> I'm at the point where I'm looking at what is happening in Afghanistan, what is going to happen in terms of what the Afghani people will suffer, in terms of the repercussions that Americans may suffer, and looking and going, if the cost is only leaving a brigade there, again, we've been in Korea forever, Germany forever. We have more military bases, a standard libertarian talking point that the military is spread out everywhere. But they're also not fighting in those places. And I have a hard time gathering up a whole lot of anger about that. If it is really a brigade there keeping this government from falling and those hor parade of horribles befalling Americans and Afghanis and who knows who else, isn't it worth it? Uh, no, I don't think it is um, because they will be fighting. Um, the Taliban isn't going to stop and if we were to stay, the Taliban would keep killing Americans. We've lost 2,300 plus Americans uh, in the 20 years that we've been fighting there. We spent 2.26, I think, trillion dollars um, and, well, and, 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 we every, and, we, and, and, and we're not accomplishing. We don't have an, a thing that we're pointing ourselves to accomplish other than keep horrible people from getting back in charge and keep potentially bad things from happening to us, which are both noble goals. I'm just not sure that they're ever attained. When are you done? When, when have you attained those? Well, this, this would be the, the Rand Paul argument, right? right? That this is the forever war. Right, we're is, we're I, going I, to be engaged there actively forever note, because it will, will never I'm pacify. making the Rand Paul argument and you're making the Dick Cheney argument. And I know. New. This, is, this, this is bizarre <laughs> and we will once again switch up our opinions when we come back. Eric Cohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Join the program with us at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to join us on the program this evening during the break, Jonathan, we were talking about a, a, an interesting point that you made, which is we're about to end a 20-year-long war. I mean, if, if this war were a person, it's almost able to buy a drink for itself. It's old <laughs> enough to vote. It's old enough to serve in itself. And it's gotten some attention. Um, now, look, we, we talked a little earlier about the kind of manic state of national politics the lack of quality news media in general, which is a point that David Masiotra brought up, which I, I tend to agree with. We probably have different reasons for why that's the case. But nonetheless, no one really seems to care all that much. Is it just because, as I've been told forever, that unless there's something truly catastrophic like 9-11, 
people just don't vote on foreign policy? Or is this more pronounced to you than even just that regular political truism? This uh, this is a, a a concern of mine, and it's not so much that people don't vote on foreign policy; it's that Americans no longer take America's role in the world seriously. If we and uh, you know, as I mentioned to you during the break, if we had to fight another Cold War today, we'd lose because we're not serious uh, about the projection of America's power around the world, or what it means to be an American in the world, or what America's role is in protecting freedom and liberty around the world. Um, you know, and, and not just because we're about to end a 20-year war, but because you know we we have uh, a, a freedom-loving people in Hong Kong being overrun by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, their major daily liberty-loving newspaper was shut down last week, and nobody has anything to say about it. Uh, and part of that is because the Chinese Communists have done a really good job of co-opting our institutions with money. Uh, you know, LeBron James has a lot to say about Black Lives Matter and nothing to say about Chinese lives because ch- the Chinese pay him. Uh, and, uh, you know, John Cena will grovel uh, to them for daring to say that Taiwan is a country, which, of course, it is. Um, but the, uh, if we had to fight another Cold War today, we'd lose. And the reason we would lose is because we're no longer serious about just talking about America's role in the world and, and informing ourselves uh, about what it is and what it means and what it should be, discussing what it should be. Uh, you know, uh, we passed the authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan one week after 9-11. Congress never revisited it, never time-limited it, and forced the administration, any administration, to come back to Congress and ask for reauthorization. They never rescinded it. Uh, you know, they put it out there and they left it. They did the same thing with the Iraq uh, uh, AUMF in 2002. They put it out there and they left it. And successive administrations, I'm not criticizing just the Biden administration, but successive administrations have based, what now, military activity in 14 countries on those two AUMFs? Uh, and we never talked about it, and our leaders never talked well, about it. A, an important point to make here, there was a vote in the House to repeal the 2002 AUMF that is expected to be taken up by the Senate later this year. So is that a positive sign that perhaps, you know, I want to look for signs that Congress wants its power back. No, right? it's there's, co- there's, there was a great essay from Yuval Levin in commentary a few years ago that Congress is weak because its members want it to be. Yeah. Is this a positive sign no. that they're trying to regain the power? No, because it's cosmetic uh, and it's way too late. Uh, the, and, and everything Congress does now, when it bothers to do anything at all, is cosmetic. Uh, uh, the the time to do something about the AUMF for Afghanistan at least was 10 years ago after we killed bin Laden that was the time to do something just time limit it all we had to do was give them six and months and, and force the administration to come back in for a reauthorization and I think to Jonathan's point you know as much as we want to complain about government it always goes back to the people who empower them yep. you know if you don't ha- if you have an electorate if you have a country that's more interested in can identify more R&B singers than they can U.S. presidents, and they're in, they'd be, you have more people voting for American Idol than you do in, in a presidential election, you've got a, c- a country with serious problems. And I think a lot of that starts in our educational system where we're not teaching people to think critically, to, to evaluate and assess. We just take everything that's spoon-fed to you and go about your merry life. And you see that locally, and it makes its way all the way up to the federal level. I, I largely agree with that. But I, I want to take it a slightly different way in that, look, the basic civic stuff 
is alarming to me, right? You know, the fact that people can't name all three branches of government or think if they mm -hmm. say the presidency, the House, and the Senate that those are the three branches <laughs> of government. Or there are some people even within the United States Congress that think there's only one branch of government and it's the United States Supreme Court. Uh, there are clear civic problems there. But wouldn't at minimum, and I'm not saying this is the way that it's actually cashing out, but you would hope that people's attention would be focused on the levels of government that are closest to them and thus most meaningful in their lives. Um, one of the reasons that I'm in favor of federalism is to push as much power decisions down to the most local level possible. So that way when people get angry, you know, you know who the mayor of the city is, you know who your state representative is, hopefully, and you know what people, if they make a decision that really disrupts your life, you know what people to fire. But as we talked about earlier, so much of our attention is put on Washington, D.C., and not really focused on those local levels. Is, is it just dysfunction from top to bottom? Yeah, it, it's, it's, but it's dysfunction. You know, as, as Ray said, and I'm sure this isn't true in the 15th Ward, but the, the, when you have an electorate that cares about other things and not about its own governance and not about you know, taking care of its own freedoms and liberties, this is what you're going to have. Now, obviously... Um, I, I I love federalism, and I think states and municipalities should uh, do more, and I think that voters should pay a lot more attention to those elections. That doesn't necessarily, of course, translate to foreign policy. Foreign policy's got to be done by the federal government. But, the, I mean, on Afghanistan, you know, this is fundamentally an issue of uh, Americans deciding a long time ago, I think, that this was no longer something they needed to pay any attention to. The, the overwhelming majority of the men and women who've served there uh, have, it doesn't touch the average American at all. Um, the 23 or so hundred deaths uh, that we've experienced, for the most part, didn't touch the average American at all. And so it's just right. ignorable. Government does, should not operate with the set it and forget it mentality. Right. It's not a roast. It's something that lives and breathes and has to evolve. And it might not be financially uh, exorbitant, this war, on an annual basis, but it has taken its huge toll on the American economy, on its government, and resources that could have went elsewhere. And you have two of those going on simultaneously, not to mention as we talk about the rest of our military operations everywhere else. And then when you look at what we're focusing on back in the home front, it pales in comparison with our priorities. There's also a confidence issue. You know, one of the things that... Um, that Jean Kirkpatrick talked about in her speech at the 1984 Republican convention. Um, uh, she was a UN ambassador under Reagan. One of the things that she talked about was the return of confidence that Americans during the Carter years lost confidence in who we are and what we stood for in the world. Um, I think that we've had now successive administrations that have completely sapped us of our confidence in who we are and what we believe in. I don't think we know those things anymore. And so and and I don't think that we're capable of having a high-level conversation about it nationally. I think most Americans would just prefer to watch whatever Kardashian show is on and <laughs> and uh, ignore it right, yeah. and have a bowl of cocoa Do, puffs. Does it and take on. Does it take a charismatic figure, some well, unique figure I, like I was, a Ronald I, Reagan I, I was to just bring that say, out of people? You need you need a new Reagan and you need a new issue. And I think as we look at chi uh, China celebrating a hundred years of communism this week. Mm -hmm. It's going to be someone who needs to stand up to China and be like, you know, well, tear down that wall moment that I'm, you need. I'm to glad that you brought up 
Apple Daily in Hong Kong, which was the pro-democracy newspaper run by Jimmy Lai, who is now in prison, who, if you don't know who Jimmy Lai is, look Jimmy Lai up. But yes, this paper that was shuttered, we see what's happening in Hong Kong. And I have said numerous times now that it strikes me as the kind of thing that 35 years ago, at a time when we were just a little less navel-gazing as a population, it would have been a lot more on the forefront of our minds that, you know, a, a tyrannical government like the Chinese Communist Party-run Chinese government mm-hmm. taking over the free city of Hong Kong and putting it under their thumb would have brought outrage. Right. And now it just people are either unaware or indifferent to it happening, it seems. A young man in front of a tank sparked outrage around the world. A newspaper being obliterated blip on the radar. Mm-hmm. The, uh, part of the problem that we have with China is and it's this, if you think that Americans didn't understand the Middle East, and they didn't, uh, culturally didn't understand what they were dealing with, um, it's even worse on China. I think there's a, a, a real disconnect uh, between what most Americans understand and, and, and what goes on in China and who the Chinese are and what the Chinese Communist Party is. Um, and There'd be a, a steep learning curve, and when was the last time Americans wanted to learn anything? Well, what what do we do then? Lose probably. I, well, if you're sorry, not in, that's a dark cloud, but that's what I think. If, if you're not in favor of losing, what do you try to do? Well, I think I, th- I, think, I mean I think it's up to we. Need, I, I would love for a Ronald Reagan to. It, what what's terrible is when you have a system that requires a savior right, to rise up and t- lead people to make the conclusions that they should make. But, you know, Lincolns right. don't come along very often. And, um, you know, and we got lucky that we had Lincoln when we had him and that he won. Um, but, you know, it's, you're, what you're asking is, what do you do if Lincoln doesn't win? And I'm not sure. You have a Congress full of sheep and you're waiting for a shepherd right now. And I think you're going to need one good scare, probably a financial one where China might call in all its IOUs that they're sitting on to <laughs> maybe bring someone to wake up and say, well, oh, is we that, can't pay our bills. Let's figure out how to... Is that the only thing? I mean, would it make any difference if it took Taiwan? No, I don't no. think it would. No, it should, but well, it wouldn't. Uh, when we come back on Beyond the Beltway, we'll try to be a little sunnier in the uh, <laughs> next segment or at least give you instructions on how to craft the hand basket that we're going to hell in. Eric Cohn sitting in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, 
but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Eric Hone in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway this week. Phone lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. That's one 800 723-8289 to join us on the program. Vice President Kamala Harris went to the border. She has been assigned, this is her project, <laughs> is to handle the border crisis. And as a keen observer of politics that I am, I know that when you want something handled seriously, you always assign it to the Vice President, like when, oh, I don't know, <laughs> Joe Biden was going to cure cancer. Um, Al Gore cut back on federal paperwork. Remember those big pallets of paperwork on the White House lawn? Did he put them in a lockbox? That's all I want to <laughs> know. Uh, After so he invented the internet. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, he, he invented the internet, no need for paper anymore. It just, these things flow one to the other. Uh, so, Alderman Ray Lopez, your thoughts, so we have a ebbing and flowing border issue that we saw a lot of attention to under Donald Trump that we saw some attention to, and of course, who cares most about it changes with the, po uh, the office holder's political affiliation. Um, is, do you have any thoughts on the visit that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris made to the border? Well, you know, I'm so thankful that the Vice President decided to visit Taco Bell and call it a border <laughs> visit. Uh, it's a border run. A you make a run for the border. A run for the border, a, a thousand miles away from where the actual crisis is. Yeah. Um, that would be like me saying, oh, I'm going to take care of the inner city problems in Chicago and then go hide in Evanston or Oak, Oak, 
No, it, it, it is that. I can't remember um, who what, what network that was on, but some guy from a few years ago being interviewed talking about the problems in Chicago, and the other guy calls him out, you're from Evanston, Evanston brah. Right. You're from Evanston. No, you're, 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 it's a good point. And, and to your point, you know, I've been on this show numerous times talking about the treatment of uh, undocumented immigrants, individuals coming here, fleeing from wherever um, in South America to come to this country and how they were poorly treated under the previous administration. And let's not kid ourselves. Just because you put a new name on a cage, it's still a cage. And this administration, to this up until this point, has been no different than the last one in dealing with uh, what's going on down there. They're actually in more in denial than I think Donald Trump was, as much as I don't like what his policies were, at least he acknowledged that there was an issue down there where I think the Biden administration likes to purport that uh, the narrative has somehow changed now that they're in office. We still have kids not with their families. We still have kids being put in cages. We still have issues of abuse and trauma going on down there, a humanitarian crisis that, you know, the vice president says we have to get to the root of the problem at some point. What that means in the terms of the tens of thousands of individuals that are taking over the Houston Astrodome because they've got nowhere else to put them, you know, I don't know. But they are clearly not up to the, up to the task at this moment. Uh, and Kamala is more interested in getting her headline or her talking points right than she is about actually solving anything. Yeah, the, I think the, the other thing that the Trump administration had going for it um, w- was at least there wasn't this effort at Orwellian news speak to convince people that what they were doing they aren't actually doing. That the, the you know to the point that the policy is essentially the same, but they're calling things different Word by salad. different names, right? And <laughs> for her to go look for her to go visit in El Paso County, you know, Ray pointed this out. The, the problem is a thousand miles away between what McAllen and Laredo is yeah. who the the stretch of the border that's that's the worst off. You know, why did you can go to Star County where things are really bad, but she didn't do that. That's not the that's not the last thing that she wanted was a photo op of her walking past a cage. Um, and so they scrupulously avoided that. Um, and so uh, the, the problem that I have is that um, this issue was a huge moral concern right up until Joe Biden got elected president. And then for our friends on the left, all of a sudden it wasn't a huge moral concern anymore. Things that are a moral concern either are or they aren't. Um, I didn't stop talking about the Syrian civil war because Donald Trump got elected. Uh, you know, at that point is actually when you press your case because you should have some sway over the person. Uh, and it's really disappointing for me to watch people, including, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ordained rabbi. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a real push from um, clergy in the Jewish community to do something about our, the immigration situation. But obviously that was only because Donald Trump was president because I don't hear anything about it anymore. So either it wasn't a real moral issue or they were grandstanding. Is it another example of our dysfunctional politics and government? Because a line that I've stolen from uh, Jonah Goldberg, which I think is, a, I think, a good way of looking at this. Um, he's been saying, and now I've, I've, that I've stolen it from him, I've been saying for a long time that my desired immigration policy would be to have one. Mm-hmm. And the regime uncertainty that exists as a result of things changing from one administration to the next in the way that Congress, because it doesn't act, because it doesn't legislate, Mm -hmm. that so much is done through executive fiat and the changes that are made are made through executive fiat or, in the case that we're pointing out here, nothing really changes other than the way that we talk about it. The only solution to this, to me, 
is a legislative one that deals with some of the realities of why the system is dysfunctional, that for certain people who don't already have uh, someone who is a relative who is in this country, the average wait time, Reason Magazine had a great flowchart about this several years ago, the average wait time is about 175 years. Is it any wonder, then, that people want to find some way to come across the border and go around the system because the system can't work for them? Well, the system is right now designed not to work. It's it's basically an impenetrable force. And, you know, the assumption that a legislative action will work uh, only works if you're assuming that legislators want to end it. How many careers have been born talking about this issue to death We've seen congressmen, even in our own state, the late, uh, the late, I was going to say, the great Luis Gutierrez, 20 years in Congress, always championing about doing something about immigration, didn't do squat. But his whole career was based on that. And there are plenty of others on both sides that ride this issue from start to finish in a career. There's no incentive for them to try and solve this because that's what their whole talking point is, their whole reason for being in Congress could be, or why they're trying to get promoted upwards in politics. And you have to start looking at something a little different, a little stronger. And you have to have uh, a president who actually finally admits that this is an issue that you have to fix. Admit if it's a moral issue, like Jonathan says, uh, and act on it because there should be outrage. It should be something that pulls on every American's heartstrings. But again, we get so focused on whatever's going on on TikTok or Snapchat that we don't really care once we see those AOC tweets about those kids in the cage. And then she goes back to whatever she's doing. I listened to an interview several weeks ago that uh, the people at the dispatch did with former president George W. Bush um, talking about a lot of issues and what his life has been like post-presidency but also about his book where he uh, has portraits of uh, immigrants which is a very nice book I have a copy I recommend it to people it's it's a very interesting read a lot of interesting stories in there but they asked him in there about the attempt at comprehensive immigration reform made during his presidency and that looking back as you see the populist movement on the right very much opposed to that kind of comprehensive immigration reform much more hawkish on immigration than the party was nationally if he blamed those kinds of elements for tanking that deal and his answer was no I don't the blame he placed on Chuck Schumer as Chuck Schumer decided that it would be much better to have this as a campaign issue than it would to let that group of people finish negotiating right. it. And I, I hold, you know, again, as, as having some partisan you know, inclinations here, uh, or at least ideological inclinations, I don't hold on any great hopes that that would have been some panacea that would have fixed our immigration problems. I don't think it would have. It might have been better to at least, again, create some regime, regime certainty and try to address some of the problems. But it's better as a political issue. The problem with having it as a campaign issue is that what, what campaign issues do is they uh, clarify sides. And so you entrench people on their sides and you radicalize them. So you know, the let them all inside becomes more radicalized and you keep them all outside becomes more radicalized. And it makes Absolutely. it makes eventually ha- having any kind of a compromise virtually impossible. Um, and I, I don't think that's just Chuck Schumer. I think that that's I, I, again, it's the, the incentive structure in Washington that uh, there's no incentive to solve this or any other problem. Um, that's not how you get reelected solving problems. You get reelected by pissing Fighting off them. your base. Right. Five hundred and thirty-five people need a reason to exist, right. and that's one of them.
it's definitely one of them. And however, you would think that a president would want to be able to get away. Right. You know, Biden has whether he, you know, not to the extent that Trump was clearly, but has been dogged by this issue. Trump was dogged by this issue. He, they both embraced it in different ways. Mm -hmm. But you would think that there would be some desire from an occupant of the White House to not have those kinds of circumstances on the border during their presidency. You think it would be in their interest to do something about it, yet it doesn't seem to be. Well, Biden, more specifically than I think Trump, because Biden also worked with President Barack Obama, who was the deporter-in-chief for eight years. So it's not his first go-around with dealing with undocumented situation. You know, Trump had four years as president, but Biden had eight years with President Obama to uh, deal with this, and now he's got his own set of issues with it now. So this is not a new issue for him. And I'm hard-pressed to say that, you know, he should get a pass for that because he's got the background in dealing with this. How he chose to deal with it is to hand it over to a novice who clearly doesn't want anything to do with this issue mm -hmm. because she looks so disgusted and aggravated every time you see her get questioned, what are you doing? And I'm saying this as a Democrat. It's cringeworthy to see how she gets all animated, flustered, and and painfully well, backtracked. There was a, the the so, answer that she gave to the question of why she hadn't been to the border yet, and she said, I haven't been to Europe either, it was like, okay, that's a non sequitur. <laughs> and perhaps if there were some, you know, if there was a huge issue of Romanians coming to the American border and crossing illegally, maybe then we would have a reason to discuss why she hasn't been to Europe. But you know what? Doesn't really have anything to do with the issue and the problem that she was assigned. Right. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway this evening. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. A My Social Security account allows you to access your earnings, history, and benefits information, request a replacement Social Security card, get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. 
Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont this week on Beyond the Beltway. Want to note again, this is the 41st anniversary of Beyond the Beltway. 41 years on the air for Bruce. Just an incredible accomplishment and uh, so grateful. Uh, I am so grateful to him for this opportunity to host the program this evening. Let's wrap it up here. So former Vice President Mike Pence was speaking at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, in which he, in pretty clear terms, said that the whole uh, narrative that the former president and a lot of his supporters advanced about January 6th, that he had the power to hand this back to the states or uniformly declare that Trump was going to be president again, he never had, and that it was dangerous. Jonathan, you're not a Republican anymore, but you're a former Republican. So I will throw this to you. Is this going to work in any way for Mike Pence? Because you you have to think that his desire is to be president of the United States. He's a former vice president. But it seems to me that he is stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's Trump's vice president. Mm So there are certain people within the party that will never appreciate him just because of that fact. And he also, to his credit, said what was true Mm -hmm. in this speech. And there are a certain element of the party that will never accept him because he did that. Yeah, so I was was lucky to work with um, Mike Pence when he was in Congress. And I was at uh, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Um, I thought very highly of him then. I thought highly of him as governor of Indiana. I think he's a good man. Um, but, um, I, look, I think that Mike Pence uh, lost any uh, ability to run. I, 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 mean th- I think Mike Pence's presidential ambitions are held back by Mike Pence. So uh, I don't think he's I, – I, he's not an inspirational guy. He's not uh, – he makes a very good vice president, I think. And I think the, the primary job of the vice president is to – do the uninteresting stuff when Mike Pence is great at uninteresting um, and to win the <laughs> vice presidential debate. And he did that handily twice. So um, I, I think he was a very good vice president. I don't see him being competitive in presidential politics. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, if that's what he's aiming for, um, I mean, th- this probably didn't help him, but I don't think he was particularly helpable. That said, again, 
it's the right thing to do and he's an important person to say it and more Republican politicians I think probably should say it clearly if for no other reason than the conservative movement needs to be done with it we need to move past it um, and we need to start focusing on what's going to happen in the future uh, and, and I think the best way to do that is to address it and be done well, Sa sadly, I don't think anyone wants to address anything in, in that party because yeah. you look at even like uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's trying to give truth, or Liz Cheney, who's trying to give truth and balance to the to the Republican Party. Well, to the uh, we've had, we've had, this we've conversation. had the, Jonathan and I have had this conversation, but you know, to the, the joke that I and others have made um, is every time someone other than Liz Cheney brings up the stolen election narrative. It's why can't Liz Cheney let it go? And the example of the person this past week bringing up the stolen election narrative yeah. is Donald, Donald Trump, Trump himself, yeah. who's speaking at a rally, right, made it <laughs> and crafted his language so interestingly because there's that whole that he might be reinstalled in August as president. And he said 2024 or before when he becomes president again. I mean, is there is this not just inescapable <laughs> but, see, for see, Republicans? But that, but that goes back to the uneducated electorate who actually mm -hmm. believes that this is even a possibility. You know, I think what the v former vice president was referring to, that everything that was thrown out there was never a possibility. And yet they were still ready I, to try and force him into an action he couldn't do. I'm, I'm halfway between the, um, you know, are there people who could understand our, you know, civic structure a lot better? And that would be very helpful. Could understand what's going on in the world a lot better. That'd be very helpful. Yes, I think that's true. I think there's also just a lot of LARPing out there, a lot of people doing live action role playing and saying things yeah. that just drive the other side crazy for the purpose of driving the other side crazy. And that to me is just a toxic combo. See, but as someone who has seen where you have an electorate that's not always fully engaged or voting, if you can find an item that wakes up the sleeping voters and just brings them out, that is dangerous too because you're bringing them out to act on a lie. And then when they find out that the lie doesn't exist, they do things like what we saw on January 6th. So the, the conversation that you and I have had before, I, and I, I, um, I, I think that Adam um, and Representative Cheney actually do talk about this too much, uh, and I think that they can't let it go. I think they both take it personally, which is, I think, understandable, um, but in politics, like, I, I think the best thing to do for both of them would be to stop talking about it now. Uh, and we've discussed this before. It's it's not just that other people bring it up or Donald Trump keeps saying something and they respond. You don't need to respond just because Donald Trump says something. So the uh, <laughs> they both made their positions very clear, and I agree with them, and the time to stop is now. The problem is the, the I think the overwhelming majority of elected leadership in the party agrees with them and is afraid to say so because they're afraid of the base. Um, and so they're trying to get away with not saying anything in the hopes that we'll be past it. Um, and then we can concentrate on 2022 and 2024. Um, I think from a civics standpoint, uh, as Ray is saying, that's a mistake. Mm. Um, I would prefer that we address it. But then I, I do agree that we need to address it and be done with it. Um, and and it, it's over. There's no, I mean, it's over. The only damage that can be done now is to the conservative base, uh, as Ray's so, saying. So let me see if you would uh, agree with this. So this is from Charles C.W. Cook at National Review. I'll read through this quickly. The people who supported Trump are, in my view, quite happy to consider others. Ron DeSantis most prominently among the others, but he's not the only one. And they're quite happy to hear that an alternative Republican would be a better choice in 2024. But they switch off after you go, when you go too hard after Trump. Um, 
in other words, if you were to say to most Republicans, don't you think Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott will be much better as a standard bearer in 2024 than Donald Trump, given his baggage and the fact that he's already been president and has already lost, most Republicans on net will say yes. But if you say to them, we should extirpate Trump from the party, we should hang him and burn him in effigy, we should right. apologize for him ever being elected president and the Republican nominee, and we should do everything we can to make sure someone like him never even comes close to winning again, they'll stop listening. It turns them off, and they reflexively say they want Trump yeah, again. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and not only that, but I think there are a number of important things that Trump change the Overton window yeah. on that we actually need to talk about in the conservative movement and vilifying him vilifies those issues. And just let's forget, last time a vice president from Indiana ran for president, they didn't make it either. No? <laughs> just a good out. historical <laughs> point there. Thank you to Jonathan Greenberg. Thank you to Raymond Lopez. Thank you to David Maciotra, who was on the phone with us in the first hour. Thank you to Bruce Dumont. Congratulations on 41 years of Beyond the Beltway being on the air. And it's thank Bruce. you. But we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us. But our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless, and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. 
If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the backseat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.